Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, Oteil Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Hey everyone and welcome to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters and this is episode 9. In today's episode I'm going to talk about how huge changes in technology have shaped the role that recorded music plays in an artist's career, most recently shifting it from predominantly a moneymaker to more of a publicity tool. And then I'm going to look at how innovation has been so key through all these changes in the music industry, as it is in so many industries. And then we'll look at the current state of affairs and talk about why young bands should absolutely still be recording music and making albums, despite all this noise about how the album is dead. Have you guys seen that? I feel like it's such a predominant storyline, and I know it's something that varies across genres, but in our world, bands are absolutely still making albums, and for good reason. After all that, I've got an interview with my good friend Dave Seminette from Trampled by Turtles, amazing songwriter who's got so much to say about the inner workings of Trampled, their growth, and what makes them tick. He's got a new solo record coming out, so we talk about that. He's also got an amazing story about how they almost signed a deal with Atlantic but backed out at the very last second for very good reasons, and so much more. Really had a great time talking with Dave, so stick around for that. I'll let you guys know really quick that Inside the Musician's Brain is a part of Osiris Media, which is home to all kinds of great music-based podcasts. Be sure to check them out, and I want to say a big personal thank you to Tom, RJ, and everyone over there at Osiris for helping me do my thing here at Inside the Musician's Brain. I've been working with those guys actually for the past few years before I even had this podcast going. They're pushing the envelope. There's all kinds of great things to come, so stay tuned. Today's episode is brought to you by EMG. Some of you guys may know EMG. EMG as a prolific maker of quality pickups for all different instruments. And in recent years, they've started making two great banjo pickups. I've been using the ACB Barrel 
for quite some time now. And to my ear, this pickup really is the best one out there in terms of replicating not only the acoustic tone, but also the feel of the instrument. Super easy to set up, no soldering, and also super reliable. I'm using this thing over 100 shows a year, and I've never had a problem. And EMG is just a great company, family-owned and operated since 1976, all made in the USA, and the owner, Rob Turner, is still designing their products. He's become a friend, and he's been great to work with over the years on the design and functionality of this pickup. So if you're a banjo player and you're playing in a band and you need to plug in, or really if you have any pickup needs at all, acoustic or electric, EMG is where it's at. All right, let's dig in now to the current state of affairs of the recorded music industry, I kind of went down the rabbit hole with this one. It's something that I've paid a lot of attention to over the years because it's a big part of my career, but it's also just a really interesting and dynamic topic that is just changing like crazy, almost month to month, the way that streaming platforms are tweaking their deals with labels and artists, and then how that in turn affects artists' careers and their goals with their recorded music. So for a little bit of history, about halfway I would say through the 20th century, big advancements and changes in technology basically allowed music to be captured and consumed remotely on a large scale. And along with those changes came a huge evolution around the business of recorded music. Suddenly artists could capture, reproduce, and sell their songs, their music via a physical format. And so this became basically a cornerstone of a career as an artist. And in turn, you know, you've got record labels, you've got recording studios, you've got the companies that produce devices to capture and reproduce and listen to music. And this whole thing is off and running. And for about the next 50 years, for the second half of the 20th century, the record industry is huge business, huge money for artists, record labels, music stores, etc. And it's interesting, the way the technology progressed, the actual physical formats that carried the music from artists to their fans ended up kind of dictating one of the great pillars of the recorded music industry, the album. You know, a physical format would hold sort of X amount of music, this amount of songs, and so it it came to be that every time that you were putting new music out, you know, you were delivering something like... 10 to 15 songs, 30 minutes to an hour of music, and the album was born. And this has become such an essential part of the music world. You know, so many classic albums, Sgt. Pepper's, The Wall, Led Zeppelin IV, Nirvana, Nevermind. I mean, you can just go on and on. You know, this is how artists made their mark. And these are milestones of music that define the energy of generations of people and will live on forever. And these trends were just crushing through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and then around the turn of the century, with the advent of digital music formats and file sharing, everything changed. Of course, everyone remembers when Napster came around in 1999, and it was such a huge disruptor to the recorded music industry. And once again, just like when that industry got rolling 50 years before, it was an evolution of technology that kind of changed the concept of where and how music exists and how people possess and consume it. And this is such an interesting part of this discussion because I think before Napster came around, before file sharing, people thought that an album was the plastic disc that you held in your hand, or it was the cassette. But in some way, when those physical formats went away, the music and the albums were sort of reduced to their most elemental state. They were just 
a song in the air, that vision or inspiration of the artist, and it wasn't something that you could own or control. And this was incredibly disruptive to the industry that was once built around that antiquated concept that music could be owned and controlled in terms of distribution and sale via a physical format. So suddenly, that's gone. That's out the door. And so many conventions of the old school recorded music industry are out the door with it. You know, the structure of deals, the way people make money. I mean, everything had been pinned on the existence of this physical format. And it was like in an instant, everything changed. And like in a lot of industries that experience that kind of disruption and that kind of change, people sort of fall into one of two camps. You know, you've got the Metallicas of the world sort of clinging to the old way. And we all remember seeing video of Lars Ulrich in a suit in court, you know, a far cry from headbanging behind the drum set at a Metallica show because he thought his his music was being stolen. So he's railing against Napster, who are in fact just an innovator and ahead of the curve, ahead of the trend that's about to come. And a lot of people fell into that camp. You know, they had sort of structured their whole career around this old version of the music industry. But of course, on the other side of that coin, are the innovators, are people who see this as an opportunity and take a forward-thinking view, are willing to change and adapt, and eventually benefit and be leaders in what would become the new model of the recorded music industry. And of course, there's a great universal lesson there. You know, people who are willing to innovate and adapt and see things in a new way are always going to be trendsetters when big changes start to descend on businesses or industries that have been around for a long time. And I think the simplest way to describe the change that's taking place here and the new view that the innovators are taking as they survey this changing landscape is, yes, I can't necessarily charge album by album for my music that comes in this physical format, but what does file sharing, what do streaming services offer me? They offer me exposure to a huge, huge user base of people who are all subscribing to these new channels, you know, Spotify, Google, Apple, etc., paying attention, looking for new music. And when you put your stuff up there, you know, they're just one click away. You know, it's interesting to look through the course of music history. We have these amazing early examples of disruptors to this whole thing. And I'm thinking about the Grateful Dead and the Dave Matthews Band and Fish. And these are bands that were way ahead of their time in terms of viewing their music and recordings of shows, not as something that they could make money off of, but as a promotional tool before, way before this whole streaming thing hit. And, you know, they were never fighting against the grain, trying to be gatekeepers and fortify this industry and the whole physical format idea. They just said, have it. You know, they encouraged people to record their shows. And that ended up being the thing that blew these bands up. And then the challenge became, okay, so now we've got all these new eyes on us. We've got this growing fan base. We've got to monetize that to keep the music going, to pay for what we do. 
And we got to think outside the box and do it in new and different ways than just selling them a plastic disc. And the Grateful Dead were such pioneers on this front. You know, they sold essentially a lifestyle and an ethos. And it turns out that there are so many different ways that you can do that. Of course, there's concert tickets, and the Dead shows were this insane tribal can't-miss experience, and suddenly people are going to every show on the summer tour instead of just the one show that's in their city. You know, there's all kinds of cool and creative merch items, VIP packages at the shows. Essentially, you're just selling different types and levels of access to the band, their lifestyle, and the philosophy that defines them. And in the music world, this was a really revolutionary thing. You know, most big artists would sell their albums and, you know, you'd buy a concert ticket when they came through your area and that was it. But The Dead and DMB and Fish were so far ahead of their time. And if you fast forward to today, a lot of what those bands had going on in the 70s, 80s, 90s have really set the standard for what today's music industry has kind of morphed into. Now, these bands were innovators, and they weren't necessarily doing that out of necessity, but there was a great lesson there. You know, the value of music as a pure publicity tool, and once you take away that element of fighting against the grain and trying to control the sale of every album and realizing that music and songs and albums are more than just the format that they travel on, a whole new world opens up to you, and that's sort of where you're at. If we look ahead to today's music industry and the current state of affairs, and streaming services have hit critical mass. There's, there's no going back at this point. There's not going to be a new Tower Records downtown, and an album of songs doesn't cost $20 anymore, but it's not free, and it has this whole new value in the new music economy. So the whole game has changed, and it continues to change. You know, for a while after the streaming services first came on the scene, you know, legal agreements and the ways that rights holders get paid, you know, those are the last things to catch up to all this innovation around technology, and people were like, oh, music is free. But even that part of it is not true and continues to evolve in favor of artists, writers, rights holders. And, you know, as a loose rule of thumb for about every million streams on Spotify, six to $8,000 go to whoever controls the rights to a song. And in this day and age, in this musical climate, artists by and large own their own music. And so that also works in their favor. And it's not out of the question for someone who is under the radar to have a song hit a great playlist on one of the streaming platforms and to get a million or millions of spins and suddenly also have income that makes a difference. And that, by the way, is sort of the biggest goal of a release these days. You know, whether you're independent or on a record label, what's the best thing that you could hope for when you put out a new song or a new album is to get great playlisting placement. It's sort of replacing the role that radio used to play. And now that there is real money, you know, Spotify for the first time last year reported a profit. And the big record labels, you know, Universal, Warner, and Sony are doing better than they have in 15 years. So some of these things are starting to come around and make sense for all parties involved. 
But it's not just about the money that you make off of your recorded music. And the innovators have showed us that time and time again. And in this musical climate, you see a lot of questions from like young emerging artists. Oh, should I spend the money to go make an album and hit the studio? And I know the dusters, we've asked ourselves that question, you know, how does this add up from a dollars and cents perspective? And my answer to that question is a resounding yes. It's just as important now as it ever was to record, and more specifically to record albums, as it ever has been. Don't let a discussion of the value of music in a business sense alone shape your understanding of its incredible value to your career. And hopefully the story of innovators like the Grateful Dead, who, by the way, have some great albums themselves, American Beauty, Working Man's Dead, you know, hopefully these bands have showed us that it's not about controlling and selling your music on some physical format. It's really about the art. And even though in the music world today, especially in our world, sort of the roots jam world, a lot of bands make the vast majority of their income, some as much as 85% or more of their income on touring. When an artist goes to make an album, that's the time when their art really advances. That's when they make their most original statement. And also when you have the chance to get the most press and create that fan base that you then need to figure out how to engage. So Remember that when you make your Led Zeppelin for, that's why people will remember you. And that's the best thing that you could ever hope for in a career in music or probably any career in the arts is longevity. So keep writing, keep recording, keep innovating, and keep doing what's original to you in everything that you do. Good luck, guys. I'll be listening. I'd love to discover a new band that's pushing the envelope. All right, let's jump ahead now to my interview with Dave Simonette. Talk about an original statement and an original sounding band, Trampled. Dave's side project, Dead Man Winter, and also his solo stuff, produce incredibly quality and original music that I think will surely stand the test of time. So here we go, Dave Simonette. here on Inside the Musician's Brain, coming to you from Minneapolis, and I am sitting across the table from my good friend Dave Simonette from Trampled by Turtles. Thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for having me, Panda. Absolutely, yeah. When uh, when I saw Minnie on the tour schedule, your name popped right, right, right to the, the top of mind to sit down and Pick your brain, you know, about about everything that you guys have going on and, and your whole songwriting thing, your new record, etc. So thanks for hanging today, man. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's go back to early trampled stuff because I know, you know, we two thousand ten was when the dusters and trampled did that run together and that was really our first introduction to you guys. Likewise. And um, you had been a band for how long before that? When did you guys we started? Start get rolling? 2003 was our first okay. show. Oh wow! Okay. And that year we probably made. Yeah, I think we might have done three shows or something like that. Okay. It was you know we started as it was a side project. Okay. Uh, the three guys was myself and it was Eric Berry, our mandolin player, and Dave Carroll, our banjo player. Yep. Um, Eric and I were both playing in rock bands in Duluth. Dave wasn't playing with anybody else, but was kind of looking for people to, to play with. He played the banjo already. And so we decided to kind of start a, an acoustic side thing. 
and none of us had ever played an acoustic based project before really even familiar with much you know old time bluegrass or folk music or anything like that so, right so at first we we was just you know we threw together a, a set list of of ten songs, maybe some traditional stuff, a couple tunes that I had written, and then um we got a couple shows in town, so it started pretty informally well, you guys have to my ear, really cool, well-conceived, and very unique sound. You know, there's so much bluegrass these days. Acoustic music is sort of having this renaissance now, sure. and it's been going on for, you know, a good 10-plus years, dating back to that tour when we first crossed paths with you guys. But you guys really have your own thing going on. It's this crazy blend of, um, you know, there's the folk rock thing in there, but there's also sort of this punk effect and then a more modern acoustic kind of like anthem sound and i'm curious like what what were you guys into like how did this crazy amalgamation of things come together sure uh i i mean all of us have i would say so maybe oversimplify all of us have a pretty diverse taste in music yeah none of us grew up uh with bluegrass music um but we do have in the Venn diagram of all of our tastes, you know, there's a lot of overlap. And so I feel like, uh, you know, like anybody who's writing music and, and arranging with other people, especially early on, I think you really replicate your kind of influences that you have, you know. For, For me, sure. it was um, I, when I was young, I was really into punk rock and like grunge rock, you know, kind of dates me a little bit. Um, and folk music, you yeah. know, like, but but not a wide scope of folk music, like early Bob Dylan, more popular stuff. Songwriting was my is still my favorite, but that was that was it for me. Tom Waits is, is a big guy for me back cool, then, cool. and still is. Um, you know, and Timmy, our bass player, he comes from a, more of like a '60s pop vibe. Uh, generally, I mean, he's into all sorts of stuff. But so we all have these little parts that. You know, we we never thought that we would be a bluegrass band, so to speak. We just wanted to try something with that instrumentation and maybe write the music we would have written for our other projects. But and then you know, take a song I might have written for a, a rock band I was in. But let's try it with the banjo and mandolin and yep. see how it works there. <laughs> and none of us were really trained in the instruments either, so it kind of you know. I, it was just kind of loose, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, which Man, I'm okay it with. The, it, it works though, you know. And like Banjo Dave's a great example. Like sure. there's a guy yeah. who, and I was just listening to Life Is Good on the Open Road, and he's crushing it on there. And he's got this crazy blend of, to me, like all the things that are great about old time music, the drive and sort uh-huh. of like the 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 playing is really based in rhythm you know there's melody and ideas in there but it's not like a soloing lead instrument as much as it is just like driving this rhythm um but he plays with a pick and his style is completely unorthodox completely his own thing but man it serves your guys songs yeah you can imagine how much how much you know slack he's gotten for that pick that little tiny pick (laughs) (laughs) the bane of his existence for the pick man he stuck with it good bless him you know like that's what we always told him that you know when we started to play and we started to play more and we started to there wasn't a bluegrass scene in Duluth, yeah. you know what I mean? So when we started to play at like a bluegrass festival, we had never been around that environment before. Yeah. And so we didn't know we were weirdos at the time. You didn't know what you were getting yeah, into. Yeah, and all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, one thing, I mean, there were several complaints, but the, a lot of the stuff was like, poor David is pick, and he's like, that's just how I play. You mean because like Scruggs players yeah. were giving him shit oh, for... Oh my God, all these yeah. guys in suits would come up and give him hell. 
But uh, those guys know, in suits would kill to be in Banjo <laughs> Dave's position now, you, man. <laughs> I, I think that the coolest thing an artist can do is stay, you know stick with it. It's it's his. He knows that that's how he does what he wants to do the best that he can do it, and so that's what he decided to do no matter what people said and I think that I really respect him a lot for that. Man, I do too and I always tell people, you know originality is the thing that you can't teach someone. Yeah, you know? and absolutely and I'm not t- saying this about us but originality and is what what makes anybody kind of stand apart in some way, oh, you know? Well, I am saying that about you because that <laughs> you guys got that going on. And that's and that's just one sm- – you guys each have your own version of that. You know, you sure. with the songwriting, so much originality, so much emotion and, you know, vibe and meaning in the music. But, um, yeah, Banjo Dave, all you guys, the way, the way that you pick and now you've got Eamon on the cello just adding that texture in sort of an unorthodox way um, – Every one of you guys have your own thing going on. So it, it it's cool when a band can bring all those elements together to realize the, the vision, ultimately, of a songwriter sure, and, yeah. and bring these things to life in a really meaningful way. It's cool. It feels like, it, you know, we've we've been lucky. You guys have, you have this too. You've been around for long enough where if it wasn't going to work, it would have not worked already. Eight, and yeah. I don't mean career-wise. I just mean this the chemistry between people, you know. There's this... It, a band can tolerate a lot of different personalities inside of it, but there has to be some kind of, and I feel like it's hard to explain, but some kind of thing that, like a current that runs between everybody that's got to be there. And it's not just musical. It's not just musical. It's, no, very, man, it's, I mean, it's very personal. You're on tour right now, and how much of your tour day is spent playing on stage? Exactly. You know, like two hours. Right. And the rest of it, it's you just got to have, you got you to gotta get along. You, know? you got to, and there's a, a threshold that you sort of can cross, you know, and I'm, I'm curious to hear what it's like for you guys, but you know, if you're in it to win it and you're like, we're doing this band, mm-hmm. we might as well make this as good as we possibly can from a vibrational perspective. And then it starts to work in your favor, you know, yeah, that you can figure out, to, that's a great way to say that you can figure out how to meaningfully coexist and even cooperate with these people. It can really bleed into the music Absolutely. and the art and you need to do that. And that shows on stage too, man. That's right. I think that's, and that's probably my favorite part about touring with the band. I mean, the shows playing shows is a wonderful experience, you know? Um, and, but a way to get, you know, it's, I think you do that a few thousand times, and uh, a lot of people get burnt out by just that. But if that's the only joy involved, and that's that's uh, it's, it can go away pretty fast. So you have that that connection with the other people you're, with which you're playing, and that's where kind of the magic lies. Yeah, and as a testament to that, it's been. I know you guys added Amen. How long ago now? Well, I was guessing around 2015, something but, like that. Uh, the the rest of the other five of you have been doing it for yeah I seventeen mean, years. Ryan, let's see, it started with three of us uh, for a couple shows. Tim, our bass player, hopped in shortly thereafter, and then we were a four piece for three years maybe. And then Ryan, our fiddle player, joined two thousand seven. Okay, and then Eamon, you know, almost ten years later. But, but you guys have nobody's been a solid left unit. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's keep, the, that's the growing. true test. Nobody. We're running out of space. You know? <laughs> That's great, you know, and I can hear all that stuff in your music from an influences standpoint, all those different things come together. Like I say, ultimately, it's about the songs, though, 
And that's your thing. And it sounds like, based on the stuff that you're into, that you've always been a songwriter. That's always kind of been your calling. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, you know, I've never been much of a guitar player. I like to play guitar. And I like to play it in the way I like to play it. But I don't really work on that part of my craft that Mm -hmm. much. Um, It's never been the focus for me. focus for having a guitar in my hands has kind of been uh, a vehicle to deliver a song. Mm -hmm. Has always been that a little bit of the purpose for an instrument even for me to have. I love playing guitar and I love, you know, I'll play electric guitar a lot and and that music part of it, but I'm not schooled in that way. Mm -hmm. So for me, yeah, songwriting is, uh, I like to think of it as my instrumental contribution to that band a little bit more than the guitar. That's always been my focus is, is the, the lyrics. Yeah. Love your lyrics, man. Thank you. They're really, really cool. And I remember when Wait So Long hit. I could never pretend that I don't love you. You could never pretend that I'm your man. That's exactly the way that I want it. It's exactly the way that I am. And you call me in the morning with your troubles. Taking it downtown every night. I could never place the stars at night above. Got my hands on the ground and you know I'm right. You so that was 2010. <clears throat> that was, right. again, when we did that run with you guys. And... I remember hearing it, you know, before it made the mark that it did, essentially via YouTube, right? I mean, yeah, the video was the thing that took off. Yeah. And, and it was a, a great example of, you know, love the song and the lyrics, really evocative, but the music and the energy of the music really matches the song and brings it to life in this awesome way. Thank and that was, that was a big moment for you guys. I'm curious, just to know a little bit more about what, what that was like. You guys are observing this trend. Essentially, you know, for the uninitiated, Wait So Long was a video, you know, the music video that you guys made just went crazy on YouTube and got yeah. millions of views and all this attention. Were you guys, how aware of that were you in the moment? And when and how did you feel the effects of of that video on your career? Well, that's, that's where I was going to go, actually. Is I wasn't, nothing any of us were really that aware of it happened that happening I, you know looking back it's probably the closest thing we'd ever have to like a hit song or something you know but uh well alone yeah had, sure. had a lot of like <clears throat> there's, there's been a few but life. it seems like that one but, was the thing that got it right really and i didn't going. really know i mean i don't th- thankfully I, I i don't really pay that close attention to that and i know about it now but while you know we that i mean that we had the video i think we, we made for almost nothing with this very generous couple that that wanted to start making music videos, and so we, it was like one camera, you know. That's um, a cool video. Thanks. I dig yeah, it, yeah. Found this. It was in an old abandoned house. Yeah, yeah. In, I think it was Lexington, Kentucky, something like that. We were on the road and just had a day, you know. Um, and so we didn't really think anything of it at the time. It was the first time we'd made a video, and uh, we just wanted to try it out. And so, I mean, it's it's for our. Band, you know, those kind of things, man, I, I, I think about it in a way where it's been a real blessing for us because it's, um, uh, I mean, it's helped our band's career grow and it's helped us play music to more people and get our music in front of more sure. people and that stuff's great. Uh, the, the downside of something like that, <clears throat> excuse me, happening is it, it can be a little bit of a box, you know, sometimes. You mean people expect you to play that sure, song yeah, everywhere yeah. you go? Yeah. And, and that's wonderful. You know, I mean, everybody should be so lucky to have that problem. Right, you right, know, I right. hate to complain about it. But as a, on the creative side of things, um, you know, for me, that was 10 years ago. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and I still enjoy, thankfully, I still enjoy playing that song. But 
<clears throat> there's been times where I haven't and times where we haven't. And we're just kind of like, okay, I can't do this for a while. It's just kind of weird. You know, people are yelling at the entire show and what I don't, you know, I have like, f you know, we have so much music uh, that we want to do. And I just, what it boils down to is that I'm just a really, I just really hate feeling like I'm kind of being bossed around a little bit. So how did that play out? Did you stop playing it? We have. And got blowback from people? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, we have stopped for a tour or something like that. Um, and there has, there's always, the thing is though, there's blowback after, I don't think I've ever played a show without somebody complaining about something. You know what I mean? And mostly in, in, in so far as like, you didn't play this song sure. that I was hoping you'd Absolutely. Okay. okay. You know okay. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And this is, is, I also look at that as a wonderful problem to have because that just means people, there's a song that's special to them. And as a songwriter, that's wonderful, you know? Right. Um, it's a personality that takes that to social media and just really yells at a band for not doing what they wanted at a show. That that's annoying to me. I don't understand. Like I couldn't imagine going to see a band I like. You know, I assume they like the band if they're buying a ticket for the show, or or whatever. And then having them play a show and then getting on Twitter the next day or Facebook or Instagram and yelling at them for doing something wrong. I mean, that's. I, that that type of personality in me, we're just not going to jive anyway. So I try not to think about it too much. Amen. And I can't. You can't really base your tour or your recording or your anything in your music career off feedback. You know. That's well, and you're never going to please that person. No, because that all that cycle is going to start right. again with with something and, else. And then and if you play there, you know what they wished for, then you're disappointing somebody else. And if you right. go down that rabbit hole, man, it's just. It's, it, would, I can't, it would just be like anxiety. And there's stop, a flip you know? side to fandom too. And you know, even though I don't, we don't have a song that falls into that same category as Wait So Long, where it's like people need to hear it at the shows. But you know, we have fans who have their opinions, et cetera. Sure. But there's a flip side to that, that artists you know, really embrace fans who just want to hear you do what you want to do. Oh my God. You guys are our favorites. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And yeah. they, yeah. and they, and they want to, they want to hear the songs that you choose that night, right, right. you know, and they want to support you for whatever you do. And there's it's this a real balancing. Act, yeah. Right? You know, like you want to, and internally you want to feel not, not bored and not, um, uh, you know, like you, that you're doing something current and creatively current. Um, I, I, you know, that's it's you have to figure out how to put on. I like to put on a good show. I like, to, you know, like I, I, that's part of our job that's being an entertainer. And so putting on a show that entertains the, the audience, that's something. But the other part of it is an artist and uh, being becoming predictable is not great. And I feel like even though that might be it might seem like that's what a lot of people want all the time. I feel like if somebody does that too much, then that's a different box that you're in. You know, and then, you mean like? Do do you feel like you get pressure to like replicate? Wait oh yeah. so long. Okay, sure. And does that come from industry? No. P okay, just I mean, we're we talking more fans. You know, our, thankfully that song. It was like you said. It was kind of a YouTube thing, and with our fans, uh, it, it's maybe how a lot of people got introduced to our band or get yeah. introduced to our band. Um, but it was never an actual hit. You know, it wasn't like a massive single or something. And that's a whole different level of that. Right. You know? Um, and See, that's interesting because I, I consider that a hit. Yeah, for I mean, us, in, yeah. in this But I mean, it wasn't world, like an Adele song. Or well, yeah, but know? I mean, tell me, so like how long was it before you started noticing 
a real uptick in Well, that in was the thing sales. too. Is that thing came out and it was it was probably a couple years. Oh, really? And okay. So it wasn't like an instant thing. Okay, like okay. when a radio when a radio single comes out and boom, this band has like they went from you know, driving in, in somebody's minivan and sleeping on floors to four buses or whatever. Yeah, it wasn't yeah, that yeah, kind sure, of thing. Sure. It was just kind of a slow growth, um, which it, you know, for me, I want to be, a, I want, this is what I want for my life's work. And so I'm a, a huge fan of slow growth in music, especially in a touring band. I think some, some people have stuff happen for them too fast. And, and then it can, it can go look away. great from out the outside for a while, but it's like it's too much, you know. If you build up right. throughout your life at a pace, that's maybe going down a road we're not talking about. But um, but there is anyway. sort of an equation there. I I, th- I agree. Yeah. Like if you if you hit really fast and quick, the the kind of attention that's on you is like short term attention. Yeah, and it can go away as quick as it, as it as it showed it's up. It's almost but if an you, inverse, you know. The faster you rise, the faster exactly. you probably fall. But if you build it slowly, and you know, you guys exist. We have a lot of overlap between our musical yeah. worlds, and the fan base is a really loyal fan base. And if you, you know, give them new music and get out on tour and play shows like you guys have over the years, and that builds slowly, it's a sustainable thing. I agree, and I've also, you know, what I was talking about before about getting almost getting a little bit angry at that song. I've that's left me a lot lately, and where I I, I have. In our band, we have complete freedom, um, and you know we don't have a label. We don't right. have any. And there's nobody ever that tells us what to do. We put a record out whenever we want to. We play shows when we want to, and um, where we want to, and all of that stuff. And that's that's how I like to work. Um, that being said, I have a lot of that, so I can play a few songs in a set. You know that. Maybe I'm playing it just because I know people want to hear it. You know, I, when I was younger, I would never say that out loud. Uh, that would—that's like that was gross to me. But now it's like, yeah, you know, that's part of our show, and I got the freedom to do whatever the hell else I want for and the like rest you, of it. And like you said, you're—we're entertainers. Yeah, there's and there's a reality to that. You know, we make our living playing live shows, which I struggled with for a long time because that's not really how I ever wanted to make my living. I like—I love to write and I love to record, um, but I can't. I, you know, it's pretty hard to do that now. So you were thinking of yourself as more of a songwriter yeah. and less of a touring right. performer, but okay. not a songwriter. You know, for other people, it's just right? For myself, so, but that was before the whole record industry drastically changed. Pretty much, here. okay. Yeah, and so I've had to for the last few years really embrace touring, and I have. And I love it. You know, it's uh, as as you all know. Um, it's it's got its ups and downs like anything else. The older we get, the more of our other life is around to miss while we're gone. For sure. And and whatnot. But uh, I try to remember. I mean, that's kind of what the whole life is good on the open road record was was me dealing with that. Like I really need to look at the the parts of this that are so amazing, and the odds against doing this for my living are you know staggering. Yeah. And to really appreciate the the magical life that we have. I know. You know, I see uh, so many people I know uh, are not happy when they go to work every day, and that's yeah. not that's nothing new, you know. But I get to do this, you get to do this. It's a wonderful thing, and I've tried to become better at the actual performing part of it live, and not just, you know, 
not just focusing on the making the album and the and the writing the song, those things that used to be my my uh, kind of sole focus. Yeah, well, in- and interestingly, you know, even people who go out on tour sometimes don't enjoy their. Oh jobs. yeah, I've been and there, man. I and I have too, and I think. I loved what you were saying before, and I feel like our bands have this in common. You know, you when you start to get a little older, of course the art is always paramount, and it always will be, and there's a calling there, and there's a thing that you do. And But in terms of the experience and being on the road, you know, I feel like we put just as much attention into how do we just make this an experience that we can all enjoy these days right, and yeah. have it be balanced in terms of how much time we're away, what these tours look like. You know, for us, it's sort of like... Two weeks is kind of the max that we'll go out. Yeah, yeah. And, and once we started figuring those things out, I felt like, you know, okay, now we're focused on things that are just as important as the music, but will make ultimately the whole experience a much more productive and positive sure. thing. And allow you to keep doing it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really easy to, to have what we do be an extremely unhealthy activity, you know, and uh, we've probably all been there too, but it's, it's that's those things, when they all combine, I mean, that's... That's how bands split. It's how people, you know, get sick, and it's how. I like it's a good euphemism. An extremely unhealthy activity. Yeah, it <laughs> can description be. for touring because it really. I mean, it's com- like we were saying, man. It's it's uh, it's just kind of carte blanche out there. Yeah. And so it can be whatever you, you do want it for it to a, be. A long enough, and I feel like at some point you have to make a decision. May not even be a clear one at the time, but is this something that. I want to continue doing for a long time or not. Yeah. And w- somehow to figure out how to do that and not tame yourself, you know, you don't want to get, you want to get boring. You don't want to get bored. And, uh, you don't want to, I feel like if I've gone too far that direction, I kind of lose the adventure part of touring. You know what I mean? Right, right, There's still, right. it's still a gas to go out and travel the world and play music. And when I've, uh, there's been times that I've been just, just kind of focused on, you know, like losing the fun part of it just to kind of stay sane. So I try to find there's a balance in everything, but sure. there's a great balance in that to still get out and enjoy the the ride. Yeah, yeah. But not die in your bunk. <laughs> please, please don't die in okay. your bunk on the next tour. Right. Take me back real quick. You said a really interesting thing a minute ago. You were talking about how you guys have ultimate freedom yeah. and you have never signed uh, a record deal, even though presumably you guys probably had the options to do that. Yeah. Take me inside that a little bit. There. Was that a, a a really conscious decision by everyone in the band to stay away from that? Because, you know, there's something really enticing about essentially investing in your band and saying, okay, we're going to give someone a piece of either the creative control or the money that comes sure. in for the potential of greater growth. And that can look really good, but it sounds like you guys staved that off in the name of keeping this thing totally, well, you know, of your own creation. I don't want to get too uh, or put us on a place where we sound too like high and mighty on that because we did. We were going to sign a label to a label, uh, Atlantic, was, right? Atlantic, yeah. yeah. Uh, which would have the record we were working on at the time of Stars and Satellites, and so we were we were shopping around. To a bunch of different labels, we looked at. That was the only major label we uh, that had interest in us and that we were looking at. Uh-huh. You know, we looked at a lot of smaller ones. We had been doing it on our own and with the help of Thirty Tigers. And was this right after Palomino came out? Yeah, this would have been on the heels of Palomino. Yep. Okay, so that was one thing that did happen from Way Too Long Coming. Okay, but that was also a time where bands like Mumford and Sons 
and Avid Brothers, and those guys were, were getting hitting. their hits, right? Yeah. And so there was this thing in popular music where the you know kind of the folky bands were able to cross over into this mainstream. Right. And so I think every label is looking for their Mumford and Sons or whatever. Um, so Atlantic thought we might be it, and we were. Uh, it was a it was a lot of. I mean, I went in, We all went in there. We went to the offices, and it's almost like a. It's too classic of a of a how it worked out. Maybe it's almost funny thinking about it. Where the whole time, because that that freedom that we had had given ourselves and that was really dear to us, um, creatively especially. Oh, so we, I get it. Like I didn't want a producer from them. I didn't want anything from them. I wanted to give them a record and have them put it out. You didn't want anyone telling you anything about the music. No, they I weren't involved in the recording process. N- none of that, or the writing, or anything. Right. Uh, and all we got back from them was, that's great. We're just invested. We want to invest in you. We believe in you as a band, whatever. Gotcha. And so we went and made our next record, Stars and Satellites, in a log cabin on the north shore of Lake Superior. We moved all the furniture out of this place and brought a little studio set up in and recorded it uh-huh. with our friend Tom Herber, the engineer. And we got done with it and we gave it to them. And uh, we hadn't signed anything yet, right? I, I, that was another stipulation. It was like, we're not going to sign a deal until you hear this thing. Until you, I know that you like it because I'm not going to make this record and have you shelve it, you know. But they had essentially given you the impression that we, oh, we yeah. want you it's guys. A done deal. Go do, okay, yeah, yeah. okay, okay. And so how so does this we were play all, out? You know, we were all like, "Whoa, man, this is it's so it was so weird." A, it was just the whole scene is was so weird to us. You know, we were in New York in the Atlantic office, and I mean, I've no, I don't know if I've ever felt so out of place in something music related in my life. Um, but anyway, we turn in the record. We're supposed to. I'm flying out to New York the next day to sign the deal, and a few hours we didn't hear anything back. And then that early evening, I get a call from our manager um, saying, wondering if we could go back and can we write another song or no shit. Uh, we don't hear anything we can put on the radio. You know, we this is not going to work. I was like, told you, and <laughs> kind of, you oh know, my like, God. this is all I was saying this whole time we were talking was like, will this be okay for us to just do whatever we want? And sure enough, you know, it wasn't. I mean, so those, what happened? They, they, when they invest in a record, man, they need a rate. Of course. For it to be a success for them, that level of success is beyond anything I understand. And they're putting in... A lot of they're, yeah. they're putting in a lot so of money. They heard so, nothing, you know. So what happened? How, what was the next? I just told them to scrap it. Okay. Like, see you later. Uh, you know, I can't do. It. No, we're not going to go and, like make another song for the record. Right. Done, we're like, you know? this is <laughs> yeah. this is it. Yeah. This we, is trampled we by turtles. Us to go down to Nashville and record an extra song or something. So that was our little our brush with that. And of um, course, that's a slippery slope if you start going down that yeah, road. Yeah. And it was just what nobody was interested in it. Right, and thank right. you know, I was speaking back to our uh, band chemistry or whatever. It was. There was nobody in the group where I called when I called and told everybody that nobody was like, well, maybe we should just do that, you know. I mean, we we're turning down a bunch of money, especially at the time. We were all of us were still working other jobs, you know. But and, you guys were unified. And I was going to get a, this big publishing advance and all of this, right. you know. Um, but that, you know, with our group, thank thankfully, then none of nobody even brought that up. Everybody was like, scrap it. Let's just put it out how we have been. 
330 Tigers, and it was this huge relief, man, to be honest with you. I bet. It was great. And ever since then, we haven't looked back at that. That's great. Yeah. And 30 Tigers kills it, man. I love them. And they, yeah, we've been with them for a long time. Yeah, I've known David since my early years in Nashville. We would like hang and grab, grab lunch when 30 Tigers was just getting started, and they've really oh, they've, hit they've their grown stride. a lot, and so much so that they they were championing championing us to go do this Atlantic thing. You know, yeah. that's how supportive they were. They were like, "Great, take the next yeah, step." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but. No, that's. I've never regretted that decision. I don't think anybody involved in our group has. And you know what? The thing is, none of the people that we were talking to there still work there anyway. Interesting. So yeah, I don't think we would have had. Well, a friend it's there it's anymore. a it's a gamble, and that equation, yeah, that is. situation comes up for a lot of bands, and it's just always going to be a gamble because when it you is. keep it in house and you have it revolving around what your vision is then that can change as you wish, as you evolve, as people, as artists. But, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, it's a slippery slope to start saying, okay, yeah, we'll go do one more song and see if this, see if this one fits your vision of what can go on the radio. It's like, how how do you have any idea that you're synchronous? And and I mean, it was almost like they'd never listened to us before. You know what I mean? Like we're not that it's okay. We're, we're cool with not being that. That's Mm -hmm. great. You know, it, it uh, it opens a lot of other doors for us to, well, and that to was, not be that way. And that was Stars and Satellites. Yeah. And it's not like some huge departure from Palomino. No, it was just slower. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But Alone was on there that ended up being kind of a, a, a popular-ish song for us, you know. Um, I mean, we played that one on Letterman and stuff like that. Dude, it wasn't Alone like is, was, Alone was is such a great album. song. Thank you. And you know what I love? I love that song, again, similar to Wait So Long. It's like... The way you guys arrange it, um, the music, you know, it just comes in so beautiful and chill and, you know, you come into the world alone. It's like the the, the music really matches the lyrics and then Thanks. builds and it's just like this whole, take me inside the the arrangement process for you guys. So you, you've got songs, like you bring them to the band. How do you guys take something that you've written and turn it into a trampled song? Well, it's it's usually pretty informal. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. Seriously, make it stop. Thankfully, there's one company out there that's giving you a much-needed break. It's Mint Mobile. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and texts, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. That's mintmobile.com slash switch. Hey, everyone. This is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, 
I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. It's usually me showing up at the studio with songs, and then we maybe take, you know, we'll keep like take three. And so, so you you it. show up we at were, the studio most of the time for there, the sessions. There's definitely that's not all the time. I sometimes I'll send demos to the guys, but but you guys don't, don't do like a we've really never done it like pre-produ- pre-production. Okay. Nothing. Interesting. No. I mean, it's so it, there's it's we and we record almost everything live in the same room. With each other. No overdubs. We do some. A little bit of, okay. Some solos. If somebody doesn't, you know, they have an idea they don't quite, aren't confident sure. in, maybe we'll leave that out. We overdub harmony vocals. Uh, yep. Maybe about half the time I'll, I'll sing my vocal after the fact. So is that all by design that you guys don't want to like overcook the music ahead of time? For me it is. Okay. I, I, I will say that uh, I'm sure some of the other guys would, would prefer to kind of put a little more work into it. Um, on that side of things, but my some of my favorite recordings I've ever done or that I've ever worked with with other people are there's this there's this thing that kind of happens when people just barely know a song and this energy and they're playing and uh, kind of this looseness in their spirit maybe while they're recording it that after you know five or six takes it just becomes math interesting and. Uh, and I'm always, I've been, I've always been okay with uh, loose recordings. You know what I mean? Like a couple mistakes in there. Um, tempo is kind of moving back and forth. You know, we've sure. never used a click track. Or sure, sure, like sure. Um, instruments bleeding into other microphones. Like that's okay f- with me, because we spend so much time playing live together that that's what I. I don't want to. I'm not going to capture a live band like in front of a crowd. That's that's unless you put my unless you're recording a live performance. Uh, but I would do love to try to capture the energy of us playing and being able to look at each other and and uh, hear each other in the same space. Yeah. And so what we might sacrifice in some technical stuff, um, I feel like we gain a little bit more in some kind of uh, you know undercurrent in that recording. Man, that's the ticket. And it, you guys have a really like raw sound, which yeah, I love. Which I, I, that's how I like to exactly. do it. Exactly. And that's like... For instance, when I'm producing, that's always the thing I come up against. And granted, in the world, you know, in the bluegrass world, things tend to be more on the polished side. Sure. But everyone gets tricked into thinking that the studio is this place where you do something other than you do in your other music time. <laughs> yeah, other than, and it you know, can be. It can be. And, and, and there are forms of music that really do call for that. But in terms of capturing, I know what you mean, in terms of capturing, like, the emotion of a song. Yeah. And meshing it with what someone does, like their original statement on their instrument, like all of you guys, like we were saying before, have a really interesting and original way of approaching your instrument. So to get the best of all of that is oftentimes, you know, the the best way to do that is oftentimes just to do it. And those first passes at something can just be the most meaningful, evocative. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, I feel like people are scared to do that because... Well, maybe because of a lot of things, but especially because a studio now, I mean, you know from producing and recording, that a studio now is infinite. You know, you if you want to do, do a thousand takes, <laughs> and if you want to pitch correct everything, and That's if you right. want to do it, it's, it's this, uh, people feel like there's no reason we should do that, keep that first one, 
because we can do a thousand more or whatever right. and find it a better thing. And that sometimes works too. But I, I am, I'm a little bit of a kind of, I, maybe I kind of rush the studio a little bit because after, after about take three, man, I'm burnt on the song and I'll have to switch to something else. But the, but the guys all are on the level with you about that and yeah. they just come in ready to fire. Yeah, there's definitely been some, some discussion about, well, maybe we could take, I mean, we did a record like that. We did our record Wild Animals where we brought in our friend Alan Sprock to produce it and the whole f- was, focus was not that. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, mainly for us to just try something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did, it was heavily overdubbed, and um, which was a really, really fun process, too, and I'm happy I did it. But it's not my natural way to work. Yeah, 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 yeah I get it, man. So now you feel like you did that, and now you guys are sort of circling yeah. back to... Yeah, Life is Good on the Open Road was about the most casual record we've really ever made. What was that like, process-wise? Well, we, you know, we were off the road for a bit, uh, almost like, almost two years, and I was doing a Dead Man Winter thing, and um, asked the guys if they wanted to maybe make a record and hit the road, and everybody was into the idea, so I made some a few demos that I had. I brought them. We met up at uh, Dave Carroll's family cabin sat around and played around on a few songs for a couple of days and booked some studio time. And that was probably about half the material that ended up being on the record they had heard by the time I got into the studio. And then, I mean, we got into to Pachyderm and sat in a circle in the big room and just played the songs. Like we would, like we would set up on stage almost mm-hmm. and just played them live and sang them. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was, you know, and also, another thing about... Uh, about that and about not having that being under a label umbrella or whatever is we didn't even know if we were making a record. We just, let's go try something out. Had some time and there was no pressure. We had no deadline, nothing, you know? So it was, that was, so I feel like when we're a full-time touring band, like you guys and us, uh, you have to carve out a time so far ahead of time to make an album. And then you have to think about when you want that album to come out before you even start making it. That's right. And you have to plan your touring around that. You know, sometimes it's two years ahead of time. You're yeah. like, okay, well, we have to get this done in this space or else there's four months before we have another week we can do this. That's right, that's right. But we had nothing. We had no, we had, I didn't want to book a single show until we made, you know, until we got out of the studio, nothing. Mm-hmm. So it was so easy, man. And, yeah. that, and that made it really fun. Everybody had a, a great time. And, it, it uh, you know, we didn't bang our heads against the wall on anything. We yeah. just wanted to just sit down and record songs like that, like like um, kind of lifelong friends in the same room. I love it, man. It's a great record. Thank you. Great. Love the love the title track, especially. I lo- There's all kinds of great stuff on there. Um, want to switch gears, man. I want to talk about your solo album because sure. you have a you have a solo record coming out imminently, right? March. Yeah, March 13th. And it's not Dead Man Winter. It's just Dave Dave's Simonette's solo. Lonely old me. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the what's the vibe? Like, what's the instrumentation? How did how did this one come together? Well, I did uh, about half of the record just myself, and I have a little like a demo studio in Minneapolis. 
Um, and I was going to do, the, when I initially thought to make this record, I was going to do the whole thing like that. I just wanted just like a solo record, you know, in, in all respects. But as would, and this is pretty common for me, I feel like when I start working on it, there's a few of the songs that, <clears throat> excuse me, that I uh, thought, well, it might be kind of fun to, to get a couple people around and see what can, we can exp- how we can expand sure. this. Um, so that the, the songs that I ended up doing that with, uh, we went to uh, our, the studio I work a lot in here. It's outside of Minneapolis, a little ways called Pachyderm. It's a live-in space. Yeah, there's a house. Oh, cool, cool. Uh, it's in this little trout stream valley. It's just like this yeah. paradise, you know. Awesome. Separate studio building. There's a pool inside the house. It's just like a musician's retreat center. Cool. It's wonderful. And so I got a few days there and had some friends, uh, local musicians, some people I played with in Dead Man Winter, um, but nobody I'd ever recorded with before. Uh, so there's a, another guitar player, uh, Don House, a bass player, Al Church, and a drummer, Lars Larson, who also plays some piano on the record. And we just, it was the same thing. None of those guys had heard the songs before. Uh-huh. We just went in and kind of mic'd everything in the studio. You know, all the pianos and the amps and everything just got a mic in front of it. And they started just banging away at the songs and people would move around and play different things until we kind of figured something out. Mm-hmm. And then um, in, a, in a similar way, I mean, it was really enjoyable and really light. And it was also, I mean, we put some thought into the arrangements of the tunes, but there's a lot of live stuff on there. Now, are these all new songs? Brand new songs. Brand yeah. new songs, okay. So, I, I mean, this was almost a year ago. It was last spring, I think it was April, that I recorded, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, end of April. So it feels really good to be ready to finally put it out. Cool. So are you going to get out and tour I am a little bit. this one? Yeah. Okay. Uh, end of March, early April, there's a tour in the southeast and the east coast of the United States. And then uh, April, I'm playing this uh, cool kind of songwriter festival, the Bluebird Music Festival in Boulder. And a show in Denver and Fort Collins. Oh, cool. And then a show here in St. Paul in May. And right now that's it. You can trample okay. to get busy in the summer again. Now, your songwriting process, like for this new record, similar to what you do with Trampled. Yeah. And are you pretty much always <clears throat> writing? I mean, that's that's your main thing. I try thing. to be. Okay. Yeah. I'm definitely not always writing. I like to think I'm always writing. But you and go through I phases. work on that. You know, when I'm home, I use my my studio as this little space in a warehouse, and that's I treat it as kind of my office. And uh-huh. if I get there three days a week, I feel like that's a success. Um, where I go in and I have every you know instruments around, typewriters, whatever, and I just sit in there and try to write. Sometimes it's songs, sometimes it's not nothing, <laughs> sometimes it's just shit on a page. But will you even do that just as an exercise? Oh yeah, even every, when you feel like the inspiration's not absolutely rolling. okay. Which uh, I my theory behind that, and I don't know if it's a theory or a fact, for me it works this way, where if I stop writing at all, I stop writing, right? If I, if I don't, I, especially on the road, every day I write something. Cool. I write a page, right? And it's, I have some writing exercises I do. I'll try to you know, look at that table and try to write something about that mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and once in a while, a song will start working out. And most of the time it doesn't. But if I let those gears stop moving, it gets a lot harder for me to start it up again. Yeah. And I can't, maybe when you write, I don't know if it's the same with you, but I can't sit down and write a song when I want to. 
um, I can work on it mm-hmm. when I want to. And so when that inspiration comes, I, I feel like my job is to just be available for it because I can't pick when I feel inspired to write a song. I, yeah. you know, I can't. It doesn't doesn't keep bankers hours, man. It's hard. So I've tried to. Okay, I'm going to go write a song. And I even did an exercise a while back where I was for a week I was going to write a song every day, no matter how yeah, horrible that, that song that was. Kind of vibe, yeah. And I didn't Just practice. I didn't enjoy it though, and yeah. it kind of stressed me out. But when I go write every day, not thinking that it has to become a song, that's where I find like I really um, I get a lot of material that way, and I get also piles of horrible crap. But sometimes in those piles, I look back and see a line. I'm like that would work. Yeah, you know? like there's yeah. something there. Well, it, I hear you saying uh, that the writing process, it sounds like, and this is kind of similar for me, it's kind of divided into these two phases, and there has to be this inspiration element, and sometimes it doesn't come, but you also have to keep working, because yeah. writing, you know, when I think about writing, a lot of times, like, it's divided into these two parts where you need sort of, like, the hook, you know, the thing that you're like, oh, man, I can, like, hang a song on that. Right. But then you also have to finish the song. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a whole practiced art to that, too. Sure. And that's sort of the less glamorous part, but maybe even it absolutely just as important as writing that thing that you're like, okay, I've really got something See, going I, here. That's the part I have a hard time with is the hook. Okay. Choruses. I, I can write a 100 verses for a song. Interesting. And... uh a lot of times, a lot of my songs don't even have a chorus. They'll have like a, a part that's a different chord change that's technically the chorus, but they're also just different verses. They're all different from each other. Yeah. I have a hard time. I mean, I do so, do it sometimes, but that's the part that I always struggle with. It's like, I love, I can, you know, I, if I ever do co writing, I would love to find somebody that has the opposite problem and we just match right up. You know? but, dis, but do you basically keep sort of, Going with the process, and then you'll even go back and mine through your old oh, yeah. stuff. Okay. Yeah, I have notebooks laying all over the place. Gotcha. Try to save everything, and I don't. I also burn a lot, but I, 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 you know, these uh, little writing exercise stuff that I do frequently. That's just your brain, you know, just letting stuff out. And so, so much of that stuff, uh, when I when I try to think about something that would fit into the song I'm working on. A lot of times I'll go back to those notebooks and open up and just flip through and see if there's anything that came out years ago that might, sure. you know, that I wrote it. Yeah. It's just not happening right now. And like, here's this wealth of, of could be worth something or could be worth nothing, but there's a bunch of stuff here that came from me. So, Do you get to a point where you're thinking to yourself, okay, this song is done? Or do you yeah. tweak and tweak? You, you, you get to a spot I, and you're like, okay. Yeah, I feel like I'm actually a little, I, I kind of do that too fast a lot of the time. Oh, interesting. All right. I do edit a lot, but there is a, a point where, and I do that with recording too, man. I'm like, that's good. It's fine. You know, and it's done. Instead of maybe we should look back into that yeah. a little bit. So I, I, I work well with people that temper that a little bit, not too much. I think that's such an important part, though, of not getting tricked into sort of satisfying ourselves and doing what can oftentimes be harder, you know, seeing the big picture and thinking about what are people going to connect to, right? You know, because and that's that's just so hard to predict. Man. Yeah, but it's it. What I what I mean when I say that is it's not about saying okay, hey, I'm I just wrote this thing and I bet this is something that people are going to like. It's more like not getting tricked into thinking that you need to overwork things. Yeah, okay. a lot of times people relate to 
these intangible and oftentimes really simple elements of our music that we don't necessarily think are the things that are really generating all this interest. But if we let it roll and play it raw and don't polish it too much and just tune into the moment and try and be present with the music, those good things end up happening and we end up writing material that resonates with people. Absolutely. You know? And it's also sometimes the mistakes or sometimes the things that you think are going to be garbage, you know, turn out great. Yeah. And especially with, with, with Trampled, I have this happen a lot where I'll have a pile of songs ready for a record or something. And the ones that I think like, oh, this is it. This is, this is my favorite thing on this. Uh, don't turn out that way. And this is something that I almost threw away Turns out, ends up being my favorite. You know, when you get it in with the, your other people in your band, that can change everything too. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's just, it's a cool song, but it's way cooler with everybody else playing on it. All of a sudden it takes on this whole new life. Right, right, right. And so I try not to judge anything too quickly either. What about some of the songs, like, for example, like Wait So Long, Alone? Like, did you have a notion that, man, these are really strong songs, or did they kind of you know, wait, sneak up on you guys as Wait hits? So Long is one of the few songs I remember writing. A lot of, the, like, I don't remember writing, like, specifically writing a lot of songs. I remember, you know, It's not like I don't remember doing it, but I don't remember that day or whatever. For a lot, but Wait So Long was one of the few times I wrote uh, when I was in a room with other people, which normally I have to be really by myself. And um, I w- and also didn't have a guitar in my hand or an instrument nearby, which is really uncharacteristic as well. I mean, I was in a van. We were we were driving through Nevada, and I was laying down on a bench seat in a van. And the whole song I wrote in one sitting, which is that's maybe the only time, not the only time, one well, of the very the few times that that's ever happened okay. to me, where a whole song will just come out in one day. I read a lot of times where I'll work, I'll get two verses, or I'll get a verse. And I feel like that's a success for a day for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that one was really easy. And I, but I didn't, like I said, I didn't have an instrument with. I could kind of hear the melody in my head. Um, but no, I never, I mean, I never think anything is going to be that, you know, popular when I do it. You know, um, you're living the dream when the inspiration flows in the yeah, back that was, bench seat of a tell you, man, 40 just, Connell just line Just be awake band. for it. That's, all, <laughs> that's, that's right. my goal. Like, please, <laughs> if it feels like, you know, because when that does happen, I mean, as a, as a songwriter, that is my favorite thing. Thing. When you sit down, like I always get a little bit nervous when I'm about to write, um, but when it just comes out and you get a song uh, or you finish a song or something like that, that's just my favorite part of it, and yeah. it feels so good. You know, it's like you finished your painting or any other art form. You just know it's done, and you're like, "That's it." And you didn't have to try. Yeah, you didn't have to yeah. grind. And I, right. I know what you mean, man. Lately, I, I've been. You know, and it ebbs and flows like I'm sure it does for everyone. But it's just been great. I've been really back into just playing banjo again. And I don't use the word practicing yeah. as much anymore. I just say just play. play. Yeah. yeah, you know, just, or even forget listen. forget that it's really fun. Too. Yeah, or even just listen, you know, and sit there and let, you know, uh, just let it come in and not push it so hard, sure, sure. you know. And it... It, the practicing is sort of an overused word, especially yeah. in our world. It feels like something you have to do. Yeah, and it feels like something that is related to a high level of technical proficiency, sure. which we see all throughout the bluegrass world. And it's like, no, the the thing to do is, you know, you accrue all that technique, whether it's your chops as a picker or songwriting, whatever, right. and then you shut it down and you just try and, you know, listen and let that stuff come in. Yeah, that's – it's uh, – that's you know I, I think the most important part of 
music to me is is that it's whatever is underneath all of that i mean the the technical ability is wonderful uh you know a good voice is great but it's there's something that makes a song hit you right in the gut and it's never those things for me it's there's something underneath that and it's this it's a raw energy and it's it's maybe it's lyrical you know maybe it's some melody that came out of what they're doing it's, and that's the, like the magical part of a song is yeah. is uh what I, that's like the lifelong search you know well props to you man cuz i feel like you've got that going on with your music well, thank you very and, much and um so glad we got a chance to hang today, too, man. man. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, for and and best of luck to you and the rest of the trample guys and with your new solo record, man. Can't wait to check it out. Thank you. All right, man. Thank you so much. All right, that's going to do it for episode nine of Inside the Musician's Brain. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Huge thanks to today's sponsor, EMG, maker of badass pickups for all kinds of different instruments, acoustic and electric. This podcast is a part of Osiris Media, your home base for the best music podcasts out there. Make sure to check back with us in two weeks for episode 10. I'd tell you who the featured guest is, but I don't even know yet because we're living week to week here on Inside the Musician's Brain, bringing you guys the heady music interviews that you love. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, music fans, we wanted to let you know about Music on the Mountain, a show that will feature Anders Osborne, Dogs in a Pile, and Saints and Liars. This show will be directly after the Divided Sky Foundation's fun run at 2 p.m. on Saturday, May 18th at the base of Akimo Mountain in Ludlow, Vermont. The show is presented by The Phoenix, a national nonprofit organization offering support to those in recovery and anyone impacted by substance use to celebrate recovery. If you're running in the Divided Sky Foundation's fund run, you'll be automatically registered for the show. It's a family-friendly event, and all proceeds from ticket sales and other donations benefit the Divided Sky Foundation. Visit Music on the Mountain, that's musiconthemtn.com, for more info and to get tickets. That's musiconthemtn.com. Hope you enjoy.